at Welcome to a Woman's Place. Um, we've come back after a long hiatus. We were on sabbatical um, after the, in the in the Christmas. I'm Christina, and this is. I'm Sarika. Welcome. Uh, we're very glad to have you back with us, and um, ready to get into some new and exciting topics. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about women in, women in warfare and I actually did some, so in order not to feel completely useless um, for this um, podcast, I went and got some books um, from the UC, from UCC, so one of them is um, Countess Markovitz, um, am I saying that right, Markovitz? Countess Markovitz. Markovitz, yeah, Letters from Prison, which are so interesting, I'd actually love to like do videos of just like reading out the letters. But I got some poetry as well from Irish women poets. Um, poetry by women in Ireland. And there's um, two poems that I'd, actually, I'd like to read out. Um, and I think this is like this, this first one by Catherine Tynan. Um, who, let me see when she was born. Uh, 1858 to 1931. She wrote this poem, Any Woman, and I think it kind of like, I I think it kind of um, illustrates the the the, the kind of hidden, um, uh, what's the word, uh, the hidden, the hidden contributions of women that mightn't be so obvious. So the poem is, Any Woman, I am the pillar of the house, the keystone of the arch am I. Take me away, and roof and wall would fall to ruin utterly. I am the fire upon the hearth, I am the light of the good sun, I am the heat that warms the earth, which else were colder than a stone. At me the children warm their hands, I am their light of love alive. Without me cold the hearthstone stands, nor could the precious children thrive. I am the twist that holds together the children in its sacred ring, they're not of love from whom whose close tether no lost child goes a wandering. I am the house from floor to roof. I deck the walls, the board I spread. I spin the curtains, warp and woof, and shake the down to be their bed. I am their wall against all danger, their door against the wind and snow. Who thou, thou whom a woman laid in a manger, take me not till the children grow. And she was actually um, friends with um, WB Yeats, and she lived in uh, she lived in Mayo as well, uh, in Castle Bar. And she was kind of like a on the fence because she spent a lot of time in England, and her son fought in World War Two, so she was kind of like disapproving of the whole um, revival thing. But uh, yeah, she's quite a prolific writer of that time. Um, so anyway, I think that I don't know. Does that does that kind of fit in with um, women in warfare? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Like, um, there were a lot of like there were a lot of women that were involved in um, in the struggle for independence um, in Ireland, like throughout the centuries. You know, not just in the last say 150 years, but well before that. But they've unfortunately been pretty much written like apart from the last say 25 years for the previous you know 80 years they were written out of history like they weren't it wasn't taught in school 
because it wasn't taught in college. Um, and even when I was in college, there really wasn't a lot of focus on the women of the movement at all. Mm. It was very much focused on the men. And what I find really interesting about it is that, number one, how easily they were written out of history. Because some of these, like, you know, if you ask anybody who is it, who was involved in the struggle for independence, they're going to say Countess Markovitz. Because that's probably the only person that they know that was involved because she's really the only woman that's taught in schools even now, you know. Now, the course is changing, but it's still uh, very much weighted towards men's experiences during the War of Independence and the Civil War. Um, and, you know, a lot more men fought because that was the kind of gender norm at the time. There weren't really that many women that fought, but there were a huge amount of women that were involved in yeah. the struggle for independence. Um, and I just kind of want to go through what ba the basic timeline and kind of how women were involved. And then I also want to talk about the punishments that were meted out to women um, in Ireland by both sides, because we know that women were not served well by the state that followed the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, as we've discussed before. And I think that the years that our state was built on which even obviously still to this day we hold very dear the easter rising like iria maknakoska you know and i think that the way that it's portrayed is that this was the end of oppression you know mm -hmm. the oppression was over the brits were gone but for 51 percent of the population like the oppression was beginning mm -hmm. you know like in a lot of ways the foundation of this state was built on men mm -hmm. not women and like in the proclamation the first line of the proclamation says irish men and irish women mm -hmm. you know as opposed to other um other constitutions or proclamations or documents like that which almost exclusively refer to men around the world mm -hmm. i actually tried to I actually tried to find other independence proclamations that specifically referenced women and I actually found it really hard yeah. to find any that specifically said Irish men and Irish women, you know, or whatever it was. And then it also says like the Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens. Mm -hmm. Do you know, so I think that the well, clues of how we went pardon the program the program and the ideology that the leaders of the rising had was a socialist one not yeah 32 county socialist republic socialist yeah so it's like yeah the difference with that approach socialism and feminism go hand in hand you know socialism and equality go hand in hand whereas like the when they were killed so was that like it was like martin luther king you know he had he had a socialist agenda i mean they leave that part out all the time but that's um um when you kill those people off you get also get rid of that socialism aspect you know so like the people who took over were not socialists clearly yeah and there's always in these situations like because independence or civil rights or um, any movement you know usually at the start you have one goal mm -hmm. and when you get to achieving that goal people you begin to see the fractures in the group as people disagree about the methods that we need to take or 
how much concessions you need to give, you know. And we saw that church, that's what started the civil war then here, was mm -hmm. the fact that one side wanted to give the concession and other sides didn't. Um, even though previous to that they had all been fighting for the one the one objective. And I think that um some of the clues as to how women um, were treated in the years after the war obviously comes from how were women treated during the wars. Okay, yeah. So just a very quick timeline for anyone who doesn't know. Um, on the 21st of January 1919, the War of Independence began in Ireland. And on the same day, the 21st of January 1919, our first Doyle took place. Our, like It was actually they were independent of each other you know the the doyle had no idea that this was going to take place mm -hmm. so um what's interesting about this for me is that like the women that were involved in the independence movement had organized previously for things like the land league the land league was like a tenants rights group um in the 1800s and they'd also organized for the women's suffrage movement so revolutionary exists revolutionary groups already existed before the rising and before the war of independence so you had um a group that hannah Sheehy skeffington was in um in eden and heron so in eden and heron became common amon so common amon is it, it was it was an amalgamation of various groups and common amon is the women's wing of the ira so it was you know there there were women in the IRA but you would if say for meetings and things like that they were kind of split into Cumberland and the IRA so the women like they were officially the a wing of the what was then the Irish volunteers which became the IRA they held the exact they held the same ideas as 32 county socialist republic um so during the 1916 rising, during the 1913 lockout, sorry, a lot of them were involved in providing um, food, passing messages, um, getting shelter, and helping the unemployed men at the time try and fight for their rights. Um, but during the 1916 rising, most of the women involved were doing Red Cross work. But there were some, such as Winifred Carney, Margaret Skidner, Lily Kempton, and obviously Kempton Markovitz were actively involved. Um, it's said that Countess Markovitz shot and killed an IRA officer on St. Stephen's Green and over 70 women were arrested after the surrender. Margaret Skidner was shot um, when she was she was shot by a British soldier, but she survived. Um, Common among fundraised, canvassed and organised prisoner relief because many of them were from Republican families. So their husbands, their brothers, their uncles, their fathers were in camps, prison camps like Frangoff in Wales. And um, that's where Michael Collins was. And Frangoff in Wales um, was a bit like Longkesh in Northern Ireland in that it, all it did was it made the internees, they were internees that were put there, it, it made them better soldiers. Mm. Because what they did in Frangoff and in Longkesh was they read, they had lectures, they learned, and they learned about, you know, um, other revolutionary groups around the world and how they succeeded. Mm -hmm. And so they just had, it was like a college for revolutionaries. Um, there were women um, arrested as well, but the kind of feeling at the time was, sure, they couldn't be involved in anything serious. So they were released, most of them. Um, 
during the War of Independence, Cumann were massively active. Women activists were involved in procuring and smuggling arms, uh, visiting prisons to smuggle messages and arms into the prison, organizing safe houses, distributing aid. They helped to run the Doyle, and in the areas that were exclusively controlled by Republicans, they ran the Republican courts, um, and they spied on Crown forces. Mm. So over the course of the War of Independence, there were 400 women who were serving prison sentences for doing things like smuggling arms, um, sedition, speech-making, distributing leaflets, protesting, and refusing to speak um, English. So what I find really interesting about that is the spies, because at this time, women weren't, quite a lot of people, women kind of were seen as, oh, sure, they're not capable. Sure, what could she do, you know? She's harmless. Yeah. Um, and one of the people who was not like that was Michael Collins. So Michael Collins was brought up in a house full of women. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore he had respect. I'm not going to say massive respect for them because he was still a man in the 1920s. You know, mm -hmm. that wasn't the aura of the time. But I think he possibly had more respect for women than some other people that were in the IRA at the time. Um, he just he kind of saw their value, you know. He saw the he saw the value in that they could be invisible. Mm -hmm. So he kind of took to that. Um, so he had spies in um, in Dublin Castle that were secretaries, and they would smuggle out important information to him. Um, and they weren't suspected because sure, she's only a girl. What's she going to do? You know, um, they. They were very involved with the squad, Michael Collins' squad um, of assassins that he had, and they would make sure, you know, that there were safe houses ready for them. They would be treating wounds and providing food and shelter. Um, and obviously, they they did not get away with this scot-free. And that's kind of what I really wanted to focus on here with the podcast, is that how these women were treated by both the IRA and the Crown Forces. So... In the Crown Fort, like with, with regards to the Crown Forces, and particularly in Dublin, these women faced regular ransacking of their homes uh, by the British, regular intimidation and terrorization by Crown Forces. Um, and they did this day after day and brought up, for the most part, brought up young families without their husbands as well at the same time, you know? And some of these women on top of that were also working women. So you had, you had these kind of warrior women who were so, were, had so much belief in the cause that they were willing to do all of the work of, of women in general, plus this very dangerous work. Mm -hmm. um, and what I really wanted to look at was kind of um, hair cutting, yeah. because hair cutting was very, very common in Ireland during the War of Independence and the Civil War. I actually... And I kind of want to... I actually never... I have never knew that that existed until I watched The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Yeah. I never, ever heard of it as a tactic at all. And then I was like... Like, I was so shocked and I was so appalled, you know, like, as a woman, obviously, what looking at it. Um, but yeah, just a, just as a side note. Um, the, the kind of 
the thing about it is it's very, very hard to get data on when when hair cutting became a weapon of war, like of of a weapon, a means of social control. So like long hair, as we all know, is is deemed to be the kind of ideal female beauty standard. Mm -hmm. And it has been for a really, really long time. Like if you think about mythology, like all mythical women have long, long hair, mm -hmm. you know? Um, if you look at depictions of like state women like you know era or Britannica or Germanica they all have long hair so it is seen by some researchers as the reason that men find uh, long hair desirable is because it speaks to health and virility mm -hmm. you know like if you're able to grow your hair really long you must be really healthy so there's that, but it's very much kind of intertwined with sexuality for women. Mm -hmm. I know that obviously there are women out there who have short hair, shaved heads, that's great. Like if you feel sexy like that, that's amazing. But mm -hmm. for a lot of women, their hair is a very personal and a thing that's tied to their sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it, it is kind of, um, it, and this is kind of shown throughout history by the fact that hair has significance and is it is specifically written into laws like around the world you know like what what punishments you would receive for hair cutting so in gaelic ireland hair um any men had long hair as well and therefore cutting anybody's hair without their permission was um a criminal act mm. you would be brought up in front of a judge for doing that in Spain in the Middle Ages, there was a specific law and punishment for number one, cutting a woman's hair, but also grabbing a woman's hair in commission of a crime. So like if you were going to rob her and you grabbed her hair while you robbed her, you would get a double trial. Like you'd be oh. charged with robbing her and pulling her hair or cutting her hair or whatever. It was basically seen to like impeach the honor of the woman. Mm. Like, you know, um, the other thing as well is that like hair is kind of a signifier for a lot of people. And I'm obviously like, we're white. So like our hair is not as important as and as significant as other races and the kind of um, the messages that they would send with their hair. Mm -hmm. You know, like all around the world, there's different ways that married women tie their hair or you know, girl, women, one child, women with two children, they, they might do different things to their hair. But in Western Europe, it, it was kind of um, the only people who had shaved heads were women who were at the edge of society, like fallen women, really. So they shave your head, like if you had lights, obviously they shave your head. And um, if you had, um, if you committed adultery, then your husband could shave your head. And if you were in some, like, you know, like a workhouse or like a prison, then they would also shave your head for hygiene, for hygiene reasons. I want to talk about um, hair cutting in other countries in a minute. But basically, there were two reasons why you would have two reasons or two kind of um, paths that you could go down, which could result in you getting your hair cut. So one type of women who had whose hair is forcibly cut and um, were women who were in the IRA or common man or members of Republican and um, prominent Republican families. So basically the black and tans 
would come to the house and they would drag the woman outside and cut their hair down to the scalp, either with a razors or a scissors or a shears. Um, and it was often accompanied by violence and sexual assaults. And this was kind of done to intimidate and hurt the families, humiliate and hurt the women and discourage the family in general or the woman from continuing with their Republican activities. Yeah. That was the kind of, that was kind of for any woman who was seen to be in a position of Republican prominence mm -hmm. okay. was at risk of being subject to something like that. Yeah. And another kind of side to that is that some of these women were married into Republican families and some of these women were the daughters of or um, of prominent Republicans. And it was done not just to humiliate the women, but also to humiliate the men. Cause kind of strife in that relationship with either you know, their husband or their father or their brother. I think that that, that was done, that, that's more like the, there's obviously the immediate effect of, I have no hair now and I've just been dragged out of bed and definitely subjected to violence and possibly subjected to a sexual assault. Um, and now everybody who looks at me is going to know that's, that this has happened, you know? Yeah. Um, because there is no hiding, there's no hiding that you've just had all of your hair cut off, like you can't. You can't, you can't stay inside for four years until it grows back. So um, that, was, that, was one, that was one way that it was done. Um, and the, the reaction from women who had it done and from um, people who witnessed it is kind of harrowing, really, because they would come in maybe 10 or 15 black and tans would come to a house and there might only be, you know, six people in the family and there was nothing you could do like yeah. they would shoot you if you moved so you had no choice but to allow this to happen to you and like some of the women fought obviously they fought but you know you're talking about six six people holding you down like while they shave your head so the average woman is not going to be able to to fight that off yeah. Um, and then you would have the psychological effects of it. And I think that's very, I think that's kind of where the real interest is. Like, what are the psychological effects of something like that happening to you by an occupying force? Or, as we see now, by the people who are supposed to be protecting you? Mm -hmm. So the other group of women who had their heads shaved were... Um, civilians who were seen to be stepping out or dating a British soldier. Yeah. So the the women who were um, too close, as, as they would call it, they would say like too close to Crown forces. So what they would do is they would um, kind of warn them. So there's an account of one of the women and she's walking down a street and these two men come up behind her and they tell her, you've been seen stepping out with a Tommy, that's what they would have said, um, you, you, you'd want to stop that. And then as soon as, she, as, soon as they came, they left again, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and she didn't. And 
Um, a couple of weeks later, they broke into her house and forcibly shaved her head in front of her family. So this was done as a kind of a form of social control to mark out women who were seen to be sleeping with the enemy. Um, and on, as with many things during the War of Independence and the Civil War, a lot of the time they were wrong. And these women had no relationship with any soldier, had no relationship with anybody, um, and just happened to maybe look like somebody who did or was wearing the same dress as somebody who did. And therefore, they were subject to this form of kind of social punishment, you know, because the the idea that you were enjoying yourself by stepping out or going out with a British soldier, um, well, we're going to make it so you didn't want to leave your house. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like psychological. Um, yeah, like the very, very few of these cases were brought to court. Um, like I could only find a couple of them. Um, there was a woman called Bridget Keenan near Tume in May 1920, and seven masked men broke into her house and cut her hair while verbally abusing her for stepping out of the town. Members of the family testified, and three brothers were sentenced to six months hard labor. So these the, these women were separate from like the IRA killed women um, who were suspected of spying for the British, um, but they didn't shave their heads and they didn't warn them. Like this was very much a form of social control. Like we do not like what you are doing, so you have to stop now. And if you don't, this is what will happen. Um, and it would have been it would have been in the papers, you know, like women would have known that this was happening. So it's not something like, you know, if they came up to you and they said, you better watch out, they wouldn't even need to say what they're threatening you with. You just know, mm. know that they're threatening you to shave your head. Like, um, and that's, that, that's kind of the 1920s is where you really see a huge amount of, of this going on all over Ireland. And I kind of think that the, the effect that that would have on um, on women in general, you know, the effect that that would have on you as an individual, what that would do to your self-esteem, your confidence, your your liberty, even really, because you would feel, I know I would, I would certainly feel as though I, I wouldn't be able to go out. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who had their head shaved for, you know, either enjoying someone's company or for being a member of a Republican family. And I just, I have no idea how you would begin to recover from something like that. Like, how you would begin to, um, like, process something like that especially in the days of the 1920s when there was no such thing as mental health like mental health didn't exist you know and i suppose a lot of this um a lot of the sexual violence or the violence done onto women i mean during the war of independence you know when there's not much it's not there's no data on it you know like you, you we don't have much hard facts about like or even accounts of that kind of stuff happening or you know what I mean like the the, the kind of wealth of of um, information is not there 
but we have like example of the kind of you know the the violence that can take place when people become violent you know what i mean like when the ira become violent they don't just become violent to the enemy they also become violent to their own communities which we saw in the ira of the north you know um which you see all, all around the world really um and this is like yeah you become your you become your enemy and you start doing using the same tactics hair cutting was used very very much after world war ii in france and um, so in france they call them horizontal collaborators okay. um, is the word that they they used for women and um, who had relationships with german soldiers and after dj when the tanks um, and the soldiers started rolling through the towns and liberating them almost immediately um out would come the vigilantes and they would go to the houses of these women they would drag them out into the town square and they would shave their heads and um, some of these women were prostitutes some of them were in relationships with um some of them were in relationships with german soldiers i shouldn't say prostitute i should say sex worker i apologize some of them were sex workers and some of them were in relationships with german soldiers um, and then some of them just worked like as a cleaning lady in you know the town hall but they were seen to be too close to the germans and so they shaved their heads like in big like in in lines you know what i mean like it was a big massive event it wasn't that someone broke into their house like they did here it was this kind of um very public um exhibition almost altogether they estimate that at least 20,000 women had had their heads shaved in France after the end of the war and a lot of the journalists that were there at the time make comment on the fact that you could smell the hair burning when you were going towards the towns there were plumes of smoke like from all these different villages all over all over the countryside and you could actually smell the burnt hair um What's interesting, and, I think, is that like, it's a almost a re-establishment of who is the dominant. Like psychologically, from the perspective of the person who's doing the cutting, when you're talking about like, when you're talking about French soldiers doing it after the Nazis, like understanding who was really like, what's the motivation when you understand who really were the, the, the collaborators and the political question and the people who were doing the most harm? It wasn't the prostitutes, you know, it wasn't, or sorry, sex workers. It wasn't like the cleaners, but it has to be something where it's like we're reestablishing who's the dominant here. We're reestablishing who owns these women. We are and I feel the same about when the IRA were shaving heads here. Yeah. Like I feel the exact same same kind of idea was out there that like you can't because those girls in Ireland and in France they didn't have any information. Mm. Like they they weren't going out with these men to give them information to betray their country or mm. whatever. You know they were going out with them for fun for a good time and for some of them one hundred percent they loved that man. You know, yeah. be he German or whatever. 
Um, and I think you're dead right that this was an attempt to kind of re-establish themselves as we own you. And we're going to like cleanse you now of all of the the shame that's in your hair. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm like, the, the I don't thing, get the... The thing with the hair and what you kind of touched on earlier with slaves and, you know, Africans and like black people in America, like the whole control of the hair is a huge part of... I think it was Amy Cesar, it had this essay that I was reading when I was studying uh, French culture and, and Francophone culture, where they talk about the hair, the control of hair is actually a whole branch of imperialism and, um, you know, control of black women's hair specifically and well, black men's hair too, and needing it to be like straight and you know not fizzy or uh, uh, frizzy or curly or anything like that it's um the straightness of the hair so the, the 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 connection between you know um control and hair has a long history so um it's interesting that when to see then when uh, it's just mimicry hey like it's mimicry by it makes sense that the black and tans were using that thing because it's like one imperialist to another but then when the i think the more interesting aspect is the ira using it well actually no when the french were using it they're doing that they're taking power back from the nazis and asserting it over women through their hair the um, the english crown forces did the same thing in ireland but the French are the Irish then, the IRA in that scenario where they're reclaiming the hair again. And it's it's quite bizarre. It's very... The connection doesn't seem so apparent to me. Like, why why hair when... I, I know it's there and we can say, like, oh, this is a, uh, a, 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 this is a connection of, of dominance. But why? You look, why do men or people um imperialism imperialist uh mindsets get so obsessed about hair i think we have to mention here as well that like in imperialist countries norway they went even a step further in norway women who were in relationships with the occupying german force during the war weren't only weren't only punished by the general public who cut their hair off took away their jobs and excluded them from norwegian society they were also actually punished by the Norwegian authorities. They interned them. Any woman who was in a relationship with a German soldier during the Second World War was interned in Norway after the Second World War. The official reason was that these women were in danger of being exposed to injury from the, from the public due to the presumption of unnational sympathies. Secondly, the authorities were worried about the transmission of STIs, even though a lot of these women were not sex workers, they were in a genuine relationship with a soldier. Um, the health authorities interned the women um, and the non, no men who were in relationship with German Wehrmacht women were interned, I received think no penalties. To do with babies. This is something to do with babies. This is something to do with procreation. The fact that you would be 
cohorting with the enemy, it's not really about like the pleasure or whatever. It's the fact that you would be procreating with a Nazi or, you know, it's this protection of of the race. I don't know, like, I just think, like, but this, see, the sleeping with the enemy was only a woman's problem. There were loads of men who were involved with German Wehrmacht women, right. particularly in Norway. But, and they, they had, they served, they had no punishment. They had no, nothing happened to them, you know? Right, but if you, I think we have to think about this in the, in the, in the framework, dump, um, uh, uh, domination framework. If a if a Nor a Norwegian man has a child with a German woman, that in men's mind is the is the Norwegian's child. You know what I mean? It's a Norwegian child. But if a German man has sex with a Norwegian woman, that's an, a German child. Because it's the male lineage. You know what I mean? It's lineage yeah, yeah. procreation. So if like so the punishment is on the woman because those are your those are your baby makers. The men aren't really the you know what I mean. So if you're producing, if you're you see this with like in uh, uh, in um, fascist white right wing like um, white supremacist circles, they don't want the women getting with black guys, or they don't want the white women getting with Jewish men. You know, like Ivanka Trump got heat over her husband being Jared Kushner, who's a Jew. So this purity of the blood uh, via the woman is gatekept. You know what I mean? It's like the 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 what the what the crown forces did is punishment for being involved in. Um, in republican and insurrection or in in rebellion but what the ira doing is not punishment in the same way it's purity it's racial purity it's sexual purity it's you know what i mean it's the same action but it actually has two different um two different motivations behind it i feel that's my instinct on it anyway i know from just my general reading and stuff like that even you know if um if um if an irish man like joined the rac or joined the british army um like women a lot of women would have kind of been like no not not marrying you do you know um and they they did it for, like the reason that the vast majority of men in ireland joined any form of the british institution was because there was no other well-paying or even okay paying job you know that was your really your only avenue to be able to like afford to feed your family and stuff and have some form of uh some standard of living you know um but you know, those people the the british forces in any way shape or form they would have been seen as traitors to their country um first and foremost by nearly everybody and they usually didn't come back to ireland they usually stayed um away and if they were in the RIC then they would have maybe found it difficult to find an Irish woman who wanted to marry them like you know because of this whole thing of you're working for the enemy do you know the um song Arthur McBride 
Only in Possibly. Know that song? No. So it's um it details this exact thing. It's like um the this guy and Arthur McBride are walking around and the sergeant comes along with his corporal and is like, Oh, if you join the army, I'll give you X, Y, and Z, you'll have clothes. Look at the soldiers, they're always so clean, they have food, they have wives. You know, and it's like a it the recruitment that is detailed is like um outlining all these things that you've just said like oh if you can if you are a soldier it'll give you a better life than what you have now um which i always love about songs actually that are kind of like historical stamps and they they basically the british basically um like they took men from ireland and had them fight other people who were trying to claim their independence or were trying to resist british invasion and occupation particularly in india there's um, there's a, a lot of Irish people would have been serving in what was at the time um, the Indian part of the empire. So including parts of like um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, some of Central Asia, and they, the Irish would have been fighting essentially their counterparts on the other side of the world, you know? I have a poem here by Dora Singerson Shorter to show how like, affected women were by what had happened and it's called 16 dead men and wb8 is the same title of his poem but his is more of a you know kind of angry at the at the at the effort and angry at the um the strategy and everything else whereas hers is um i think it's a bit more emotional it goes it's not very not very long hark in the still night who goes there Fifteen dead men. What do they? Why do they wait? Hasten, comrades. Death is so fair. Now comes their captain to the dim gate. Sixteen dead men. What on their sword? A nation's honour proud do they do they bear? What on their bent heads? God's holy word. All of their nation's heart blended in prayer. Sixteen dead men. What makes their shroud? All of their nation's love wrapped. All of their nation's love wraps them around where do their bodies lie brave and so proud under the gallows tree in prison ground 16 dead men where do they go to join the regiment where sarsfield leads wolf tone and emmet too well do they know there shall there be void ah damn it by voic by voic be voic telling great deeds 16 dead men shall they return Yea, they shall come again, breath of our breath. They on our nation's hearth made old fires burn. Guard her unconquered soul, strong in her death. So it's like, you know, I think we've missed so much on the involvement of women, the um, effects it had on women, the kind of women's pride and women's passion also in um in the whole rebellion and the uh their part in it and yeah i think that's such a shame hey because i think we we don't um we don't get that education in school for sure yeah and i mean like there were women 
there were women involved in the independence movement who were pacifists, you know, they had no interest in violence whatsoever, you know, um, and then you had like, like very um, revolutionary women who were basically, they were willing, like Countess Markovitz, who she, she wanted to die for Ireland, like she was more than willing to die for Ireland. Um, like the only reason that they, they didn't kill her is because she was an aristocratic woman, you know, um, she was quite ready to do that. But like her sister, Eva Gore Booth, was on the complete opposite side. Like they shared all the ideals except for the use of violence. Mm -hmm. And um, the Eva Gore Booth has a poem that I love that I'm going to read now. Okay. Um, and it's just called Comrades. Well, yeah, go read it. Do you have it? I probably do, but I don't have it. Obviously, I don't have. I only have two marked. But yeah, I pro I probably so, read it. It's called Comrades and it starts, the peaceful night that round me flows, breaks through your iron prison doors. Free through the world, your spirit goes, forbidden hands are clasping yours. The wind is our confederate, the night has left her doors ajar. We meet beyond earth's barred gate, where all the world's wild rebels are. Think of, because I in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking about like, obviously the that's why the poem any woman kind of struck me because it it um it really speaks to the like invisible threads of housework and raising children and you know like that we see in the pandemic that are so important like yes your doctors are important but so is the person who's checking out your your food which uh, a lot of these like invisible um systems are kept in place by women's labor you know like the nurses, for instance, like those, all of that is needed to prop up the doctor. They, the doctor doesn't just stand alone. Um, we don't think of the aftermath and the people who were left to put the pieces back together and to raise families and to, you know, all these dead men. Well, but they're all dead now, but all the suffering that has to be bared from their death is going to be on the shoulders of women and mothers um that had to be carried like we don't know how many like i don't know how many single or widowed women raised children from the 19 from the 19 from 1916 onwards you know what i mean like it probably was a, a huge number of people um or or families and stuff you know um yeah and i mean some of these women were lucky enough that um you know there were prisoner dependent funds that were organized by people in America um, and by people in England. And there was money that was moving through groups like Common Amon for women like that. Mm. But that wasn't, it, that doesn't replace a husband, you know? And I'm, I'm not talking about the fact that it doesn't monetarily replace a husband. But like these women, the vast majority of them, I believe, truly loved their husbands, you know, and didn't want, as as most wives don't, they didn't want their husbands to be in a prison camp. They didn't want their husbands to be dead. Yeah. So you also have to deal with like the grief and trauma of your husband either dying or being being hung, being executed, mm -hmm. dying on hunger strike. Mm -hmm. You know, of, of that happened to women like Marie Maxini, um, back back in the 1920s, you know, or having your husband shot dead in front of you at your kitchen table while you eat your dinner, as happened to the Lord Mayor before Terence Maxine. And the, that, 
as well as and there have to be there have to be quite a few women who are in that horrible Venn diagram of having their heads shaved and their houses ransacked and also having a husband who is either dead or in prison, mm. you know, and then trying to deal with the fact that you're probably bringing up a family of at least three or four, yeah. you know, if not more. And the fact that then you also have to deal with now the ideal that you believed in, that your husband died for, that your family was ripped apart for, now has not come to fruition. Yeah, and a newly established state um, yeah. has you in submission and denying your daughter rights and, you know, you're not very well... I don't know how they didn't just burn the whole fucking place down, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. I know, yeah, so true. Yeah, it's, like, it's so much like emotional... I know um, some people don't like this term, but emotional labour, like it's so much... Not even labour, it's just grief upon grief upon grief and just hardship you know um yeah um i like the song grace actually i keep asking yeah so yeah that's a perfect example of like the kind of harsh breaking life stealing thing that happens you know yeah and like if you think about people like joseph mary Plunkett, like um and people like tom clark they weren't soldiers do you know what I mean? Like they were dreamers, mm. they were revolutionaries and they were thinkers and philosophers and at the heart of it all, they were socialists like um, and they died for what they believed in. And the women that were that were left behind, like in the wake of that, you know, like Padraig Pierce's mother lost both of her sons. Mm. Like it wasn't just Patrick Pierce died, it was his brother died too. Um, and she said, and I personally don't, I don't understand her point of view. She said that she was essentially, she's proud of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like you have obviously um, all of the men who were killed during the 1916 rising and the 1921 War of Independence. And I, I cannot losing your future essentially to to something um and then that that idea that belief not even happening the belief that your husband died for your brother died for not even coming true in the end yeah. you know and being being smacked back down the pecking order <laughs> you know what i mean like you stuck your head up on the parapet and you were like equal rights any any chance and they were like no bitch back down you go you know yeah yeah bitch like it's just ah i have to wrap it up there because i have to go eat something for my class thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time bye bye